0: Hello and welcome back to the Talking Sense podcast. If you listened to the first episode of this series, you'll know that Talking Sense is a project held in conjunction with the Ashmolean Museum. And it's a project that's all about thinking about the senses in a museum setting in relation to objects that are being permanently exhibited in the Ashmolean Museum. So in the first episode, we talked a lot about what the project is and what the project's aims are. And then in the second episode, we gave you a sense of what the workshop days in the Talking Sense project were like. In the following episodes, we'll be giving you recordings of the gallery talks, which are the culmination of the Talking Sense project. In this episode, we'll be hearing from Jasmine Proto, a DPhil candidate in history. She will be talking about the significance of the senses in reading and travelling through looking at 18th century carriage clocks as part of her talk, Sights for Sore Eyes, Reading the Senses in Religious and Cultural Pilgrimage. Her talk partner was Raphaela Rohrhofer, a default candidate in English, who spoke about the Alfred Jewel and Thomas Beckett's casket, to pair Jasmine's talk with understanding of pilgrimages to centres of spiritual salvation. Okay, um, hi, so my name is Jasmine, and I am a PhD student here at the University of Oxford in the History Faculty, and I study women and travel guidebooks in the 19th century. So uh, today we're going to be talking a little bit about the themes of um, the sense of sight, Uh, reading, travel, and cultural pilgrimage. Um, But before I kind of get into my talk, um, I'm gonna first describe uh, an object which I would normally invite you to look at, but since we are in a podcast at the moment, I'll just describe for you. Um, So the object that we're going to look at today is a clock and it consists of a clock face in silver, gilt, brass, and steel. It comes with a cover. Um, And this cover is very ornate. It features decorations of um, sort of swirling figures and it has um, a feature of some Roman soldiers, uh, a woman kneeling before the Roman soldiers, and uh, she is holding the hand of an infant, which seems to be taking being taken away by these Roman soldiers. So that is kind of the the description of what we're looking at on the case. But The watch or the clock itself is actually um, quite large. It's it's an awkward size. It's not something that you would carry around in your pocket. Um, It would be quite heavy and a bit cumbersome. And what this clock actually is, is a carriage clock. And it was built in, made in 1760 in Poland. And this sort of gives you a time of of an interesting period of travel. So we're gonna talk a little bit about that in a moment. First, I'd like to point out obviously that I am not from Oxford, Um, I'm Canadian. So there are a lot of uh, people who come to Oxford from different places. We are visitors, tourists, travelers, immigrants. Um, So there's a lot of different people here from all over the world. And we come to Oxford to see, do, experience, taste, touch, uh, all of these things that we might not be able to do at home. And this is exactly what 18th century people were doing. And if we think about travel a little bit in the context of the early modern or modern period, um, it was actually quite a difficult and uncomfortable thing to do. People traveling for maybe for religious reasons to do a kind of pilgrimage um, wouldn't be very comfortable. (laughs) Uh, It would be a very difficult and grueling process. So the only people that really ever went on a long journey would have been people with wealth or status, elite people who had the money and the time to do this kind of thing. So travel for pleasure was actually quite uh, a new occurrence. And in the 18th century, um, it became popularized in a phenomenon known as the grand tour. Um, Many of you may have actually heard of this phenomenon because it, it was quite well known. And the grand tour often consisted of um, elite European and often from the most part English um, men and these aristocrats would study uh, with private tutors or have formal education for a few years and they would study classical and Greek uh, history they would do Latin and after all of this study at the end of their sort of schooling, they would want to put this this education into practice. They wanted to go abroad and actually see the things and experience the things that they had spent so long learning about. So they would often go on a grand tour for approximately three or four years, so quite a long time. And what they would do normally if they were coming from England was they would cross the English Channel, go into France. They might spend a little bit of time in Paris, hang out and experience all that French life had to offer. Then they would go north um, and they would cross the French Alps into uh, Italy and go down the north of Italy, ending up in what the sort of pièce de résistance of the, of the trip, which was Rome. So Rome, as the cultural center of Western civilization, was thought to be the, the real end point of this tour. So people were going not only to sort of experience this cultural pilgrimage, they were also going to experience um, an important place in obviously uh, the history of Christianity, um, particularly for uh, Catholicism, as well as for the seat of the papacy. So this kind of brings us back to our, our clock, because as I mentioned, there are soldiers here on this, uh, the front of this case, and these are Roman soldiers. And the, the scene that's being depicted here is most likely to be that of uh, a scene from the Bible called the Massacre of Innocents. So, the massacre of innocents um, occurred when uh, King Herod the Great, who was the king of Judea under Roman rule, decided that he ordered um, the massacre of all of the male infants uh, under the age of two in the surrounding area of Bethlehem because he wanted to, he was attempting to kill um, Jesus while he was still an infant in order to prevent what he thought would be um, Jesus's eventual uh, taking over of his kingdom. So, in order to prevent this, he ordered this massacre, which is the scene that we are sort of witnessing on the front of this carriage clock. So this is not only tying into what people were, um, came from, sort of their heritage of a Christian faith, but also ties into what they were expecting to see and what they wanted to see when they went abroad. They wanted to see um, images of Roman past. They wanted to see uh, sculptures of Roman beauty um, and also, of course, the Greeks as well. So these are the kinds of things that they wanted to see. And this clock would have hung from the carriage of a noble person or a wealthy person. And it would have told the person in the carriage how long it would have taken to get uh, from one place to another. It has a quarter hour chime, so it would have sort of rung to let people know that you know this is how much time had passed. And they were really expecting to spend quite a long time on this journey. Um, It might take days or weeks to get from one place to another. So really a sense of time was different um, in this period because people were expecting for this to take so long. And as I said, it was made in Poland, but it was used for well over a century before it finally made its way into this museum. It was repaired in London in 1858, almost a century after it was made. And it was repaired again in 1876. So obviously, this clock traveled quite far, and it was also used quite frequently because it had multiple multiple repairs. And um, what I didn't mention before is on the face of the woman, there actually seems to be some wear, so it's been worn away. And this is because of repeated use. So whoever was opening the clock's uh, face to check the time, and this was occurring after repetitive opening and closing. So this plot kind of bridges both old tourism and new tourism as it changed from 18th century into 19th century. And the changes to tourism in this period um, were quite dramatic. So the 19th century saw some really important changes in transportation technology. um, And most importantly of these was the train. The train really sped up the the rate of travel and it also made um, travel, of course, much shorter and cheaper. So this allowed people to go instead for three to four months rather than three to four years which is quite a drastic change as you can imagine not everyone has three or four years to spend on vacation and um, this also allowed the middle classes to join touring and uh, experience culture for themselves and this also included women without uh, an escort so women usually traveled with a male escort at this time and this sort of facilitated their independent travel now if we are going to travel today we might look up where we were going to go ahead of time on the internet, we might plan a route with our maps or some sort of phone app, and we would have compared, you know, how expensive something is or how costly in terms of time or how uncomfortable it might be. And in the 19th century, the most useful tool for doing this would have been the guidebook. So the travel guidebook was the be-all and end-all of travel tools. What's really interesting is that um, it was one woman's invention that really changed uh, the travel guidebook into the modern travel guidebook that we know of today. And this woman's name was Mariana Stark. So Mariana Stark traveled uh, frequently in the 18th century with a sick relative, and she went to Italy, as they all did, and she returned to England to publish a travel um, journal or a travel account, which was very common in this period. But... She was also a really savvy businesswoman and during her travel she experienced how really difficult and frustrating it was to travel without a lot of the practical information so she decided to republish her travel log and to change it into a travel guidebook so she changed this into um, describing the practical things that you might need to know when planning a trip for example um, how much does it cost to wash your petticoat uh, how much do different hotels cost and and are they are the roads well kept where you are going so these are the kinds of things that people wanted to know and this was so popular that the French writer Stendhal wrote in the 19th century that he never paid for the smallest trifle without first looking up its price in the travels of a certain Mrs. Stark a book which indicates to the prudent Englishman the cost of a turkey an apple a glass of milk and so forth So this was really the kind of information people were interested in having and it also helped facilitate modern travel but what also this book did was in in acknowledgement that middle-class tourists didn't have the kind of education that was afforded to upper class or elites Um, they didn't have the kind of classical education to know what they were looking at when they saw it and i'm sure I have also had this happen to me, and I'm sure you might have had it happen to you. You see something beautiful and old, but you really don't understand what it is. So there was no context. So she sought to make this a little bit easier for the average person by including artistic and historic information. So she not only changed how people got to where they were going and the ease of which they could get there, she also changed what people saw and how they understood what they saw. She also developed a rating system So if you've ever done anything five out of five, you've been copying Mariana Stark's original invention, which usually um, in the book was using exclamation points. So she sort of classes different kinds of objects or different destinations in terms of their importance. And this really changed people's itineraries because if you maybe only had a week to spend in a certain place, you might only see the things that had all three exclamation points because those were the most important, those were the highlights. So she not only sort of changed what people believed to be um, worth seeing, she also helped people get there faster, and she allowed people to um, understand what they were seeing when they were confronted with these objects. So this book was published for over a decade, and it went through nine editions, so it was quite popular at the time. And it was published by um, John Murray and Company, who later became very famous for his own guidebook series um, based on her work. And unfortunately, John Murray um, is often mistakenly credited for Mar- Mariana Stark's invention of the modern guidebook. And Stark, ever the guidebook writer, died at the age of 76 on her way from Milan to England, just completing the last edition of her guidebook in 1838. So I'd like to sort of just sum up what we've talked about today um, to bring all the themes back together and to sort of resituate it in terms of this clock. So this Carriage Clock witnessed several important shifts in the history of travel. It bridged the old grand tour and the modern tourist. It saw the change in what people wanted to see and how they got this information. And it also changed people's sense of time and how fast or slow travel actually took. But it also indicates that instead of women merely being the subject of paintings, or in this case, the cover of a carriage clock, They were actually travellers themselves and ultimately they shaped what people looked for on their journey and how they valued these sites. Women were therefore key to the story of this clock just as they are to the story of tourism in the 19th century. For further reading about this podcast and all of the podcasts in this series please see the attached bibliographies in the show notes. Music for the show was by David Hilliwitz, Moment of Truth piano version, provided by freemusicarchive.org. This podcast was presented, edited, and produced by me, Christy Calloway Gale, and me, Johnny Lawrence. Thank you for listening. Goodbye.